Well, for those of you who have been on the journey with us recently, we have been walking through and exploring chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel. Now, we haven't got time to go back over everything we've already been through, so I'd encourage you, if you would like to, to jump onto the, uh, the church YouTube account and you can watch um, what the two or three sermons we've done on Luke 16, which will help give a bit more context to where we're going today. But as a very, very quick overview, so far, Jesus, as we've seen, has taught that his disciples, that includes all of us here who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, are to be careful not to use our God-given wealth, i.e. money, possessions, that type of thing, not to use our God-given wealth in unrighteous ways that God wouldn't approve of like the world around us often does. But instead, we are to use our wealth righteously, not focusing on the short-sightedness of building a lovely, comfortable life in this life among mankind is an abomination in the sight of God. Doesn't hold back, does he? In true Jesus style, these are strong words, but they are strong because of the sinful, hypocritical lifestyles the Pharisees were leading. These men were supposed to be an example of righteousness, example of God-centred living, lives that were meant to be a signpost to God. But instead, they were using their position to fill their own pockets, straying beyond God's righteous standard for them into lives that were selfish and self-seeking, all the while putting on a facade before the people who they were supposed to be shepherding. Which in itself is laughable, isn't it? As you can never hide. You can never hide from God. You can't hide a thing from God because he knows all things. The deepest desires of your heart and your mind. You see, Jesus' words are strong because the Pharisees claimed to be devoted to God when in fact their religious practices were detestable to God. Why, we have to ask, because they were serving another master. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, was not their God. That wasn't the number one in their life. They went through all the religious practices, but Jesus is calling them out. He's not the master of your heart. The ESV commentary says it this way, material comfort and prosperity are their God instead of the God of Israel. Jesus himself proclaimed this truth to them before. In Matthew's Gospel we read, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! <coughs> Woe to you, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to other people, but within, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's not the first time Jesus calls the Pharisees out. Now, though the Pharisees were hypocrites, saying one thing to the people and doing another thing themselves, they still had a responsibility to ensure the Jewish nation's observance to the law of Moses. So Jesus, using this opportunity to teach the Pharisees again of the signs of the times, he did this all the way through his ministry, using this opportunity again to teach the Pharisees the signs of the times, what they mean and what their correct response should be. He says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces their way into it. What is Jesus saying here? Well, within this verse, we get a bird's eye view of two periods of time, two ages, if you will. When Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, he is referring to what we know as the Old Testament age, where God's people lived by the law and were guided by the prophets, i.e., the time from Moses, who through God, uh, who God instituted the, the law, all the way up to John the Baptist. Now John was the last of the prophets, and it was foretold long before that he had a special purpose in God's redemptive plan. God says through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, John, and he will prepare the way before me. Which is exactly what John the Baptist did. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, we are told in scripture, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight, praise God. <clears throat> of all the prophets that had gone before him, John would not only be the last, but he would see the long-foretold Messiah in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. What a privilege. What a privilege. And as predicted, something important did change with Jesus' arrival. So back at that verse, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, something's changing. Since that point, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is, uh, is forced into it. There has been a change. Jesus was in fact announcing that the age of the law and the prophets had closed. And now through him, a new age was being preached and offered. The advent of the messianic kingdom, the age or era, if you will, of the kingdom of Christ. 
Jesus preached the kingdom of God and invited all with ears to hear, to come, to participate in this new kingdom, following himself as the king of the kingdom. This was the same message message that every Christian in this room this morning has heard. And it was the same message, an invitation that we all accepted. Isn't that amazing? We are part of thousands of years of history. The same message preached and will be preached until Jesus returns. But the icing on the cake for us is that we have the honour and we have the privilege, just like Jesus' early disciples and every God-fearing, Jesus-loving believer who walks in the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to follow in his footsteps as ambassadors today in this life. We have the privilege to share, to proclaim and preach the same kingdom message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and share the invitation to life eternal through faith in Jesus. And we have the honour of being representatives of the kingdom of God on earth now, striving to live in the wake of the future coming kingdom made complete. That's amazing. We are called to live as ambassadors and representatives in this life, showing the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness and self-control as God expects us to. You ever ask the question, how do you know someone's a Christian? Look for the fruits of the Spirit. Look for the fruits of the Spirit. Not just, not the gifts. The fruits. The Holy Spirit manifesting in the life of a believer. This message, this kingdom message is a compelling one. It's compelling. If it wasn't, this place would be empty today. It's compelling. And Jesus alludes to that to the end of verse 16. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces their way into it. Now, though this is a debated sentence, and it is a debated sentence, people trying to figure out, well, actually, what did he mean? There seems to be a general agreement that it gives us this picture of someone who has heard the good news of the kingdom of God and is forcefully advancing for it. Or laying hold of it with eagerness and positive aggressiveness. It's a desperation. I want that. I need that. And I will strive and do whatever I have to do to get that. So what about you? What about you this morning? 
Have you been dragged here by someone else today? You'd rather not be here, but you are. Friends, that's no mistake. You may not believe it, this, but God doesn't do mistakes. You are here for a reason. You are here for a purpose. It may not manifest today, but one day it may do and will do. What about you? If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, will you advance forcefully for it? Will you receive that which is freely offered to you? You don't have to do anything for it, apart from surrender your life by faith in Christ. Friends, we are living in this church age in a season of what we call grace. A season of grace where anybody, whoever they are, whatever they have done, can through genuine repentance and faith in Jesus receive forgiveness and acceptance into God's family. But this season of grace is not forever. It's not forever. It will finish one day. So just like the Pharisees had to, and just like everybody who has gone before us, and everybody in this room, you need to choose quickly, and you need to choose wisely. Do you follow Jesus, or do you not? No one can force you. God can't force you because he chooses not to. He wants you to have the choice to hear, accept and believe or to hear, mock and reject. It's your choice. Now just because Jesus is proclaiming that the age, underlined bold words, the age of the law and the prophets had finished, he reminds them that God's law will continue to accomplish that which he intended. Saying this in verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. That reference there to one dot, when you look at the the, uh, in this context, the Greek language, and there's a similarity in the Hebrew. There are lines above certain letters, little lines, little dots. Jesus is saying, is saying that even those little dots will never pass away. That is how much God's law is eternal. <coughs> Up until Jesus' death on the cross, The people lived under what is called the old covenant, an old promise, a life full of ritual and adherence to strict uh, rules and regulations. For hundreds of years, God's old covenant people lived every day with ritualistic responsibility in order to keep them in right standing before God. But for most, most people, they were still 
at an arm's length from God, living every day on a nice edge between righteous living and unrighteous living, fulfilling God's law, breaking God's law. That's a tough life. Lots to make sure you get him right. But when Jesus came, when Jesus came, God's spotless lamb, when his blood spilt on that ultimate final day of atonement, he once and for all broke the barrier between God and mankind and became the ultimate fulfilment and completion of the law. Under Jesus' new kingdom rule, a new covenant was established. No longer was anyone required to adhere to the earthly rituals of observing the, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, not even the sin offering, as this was paid once and for all upon the cross. Food laws were no longer required for those who would believe in Jesus. Circumcision was no longer the initiation rite for entering in and being part of God's people. Ceremonial law was done, finished, completed. No, this new covenant was a promise between God and the church that God will forgive sins and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned toward him, not via the adherence to rituals, but through faith in Jesus because of his sacrifice upon the cross. Amen. But, but, there is an aspect of the law that flowed throughout the Old Testament and continues to flow throughout the New Testament, throughout the church age, a law that Jesus says will never fail nor become void. God's moral law. God's moral laws. Why? Because God's moral laws reflect the very person and the very character of God, which has always been and will always be. That is why Jesus says, heaven and earth can pass away, as they were created by God. By God. But the moral law of which his character is intertwined can never pass away, because God is an eternal God. We may not be bound by the old covenant now, but all who are welcomed into God, the kingdom of God are bound by, as Paul says in Galatians, the, uh, uh, the law of Christ. The law of Christ, which encapsulates the entirety of God's moral law for the church today. Now what is this law of Christ? Many of us know it, some may, may not. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is what? 
you know, love our neighbour as ourselves. And Jesus then cements this truth just after this, that, that, that verse. He says, and the next sentence over, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. These two commandments. It's Matthew 22, if you'd like to read up on that. Now, while confronting the Pharisees for their self-righteousness, as we saw at the very beginning, their love of money, and pointing out their foolishness, because it was, in mocking God's infallible laws, which is exactly what they were doing, Jesus uses the position on marriage and divorce as an example. As an example. Now, at first glance, teaching about divorce during a conversation about money and God's law may seem like an unrelated topic. And there has been much debate around this. Why did Luke stick it right there in the middle of all of this talk about money? But I lean toward many who suggest that it is a relevant illustration, an example, if you will, highlighting the corrupt, self-righteous attitudes of the Pharisees. Remember, that is who he's talking to. Okay. In essence, Jesus appears to be closing a bit of a loophole, if I can use that word, that the Pharisees had manufactured and exploited regarding God's moral law on this particular subject. You see, back in those days, a man could divorce his wife for the smallest things. You could divorce your wife if she put something in front of you you just didn't want to eat, you didn't like, it didn't taste good. That could have been grounds for divorce. It got to that point. Right? It'd been manipulated to that point. But divorce was never part of God's original plan. I want to emphasise that original plan for man and woman. It came about because of the fall and mankind's hardness of heart. Now, God is a gracious God. And there are aspects of this whole subject of divorce that God, because of his grace, allowed reason. There were certain reasons for divorce. But it's not for us today to get into the nitty-gritty of divorce and remarriage, which is clearly a very, very sensitive subject for many, many people. And an area in which we must, we must speak into clearly and truthfully with love and grace. But our passage today doesn't demand that we go on a journey of exploring this subject today. We will do. We will do. Because it is a subject that it hurts people. 
has hurt people, that can be confusing for people. And that is why I'm saying it must be a subject that we explore with grace and love because of that and compassion. But Jesus didn't use this today as an, uh, an opportunity to delve into the, the wider teachings of divorce and remarriage. He was using it as an illustration of how the father Pharisees had strayed from God's heart, his moral laws, laws pertaining to righteous living. He could have used a plethora of other subjects, other areas where mankind have, 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 have slipped or they've chosen to do different things. Why he chose divorce and marriage in this context, we don't know, but it's there. That's what he chose to use the example. An illustration to show the Pharisees how straight in God's heart and his moral laws they had come. Laws designed to model God's character in all we do and in all we say and in our attitudes and in our actions. Not the things that we want to do based on our own wants and desires, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, but in our context, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees had allowed what God had established in marriage to be manipulated and adapted, ultimately to fulfil the desires of mankind's heart. And Jesus was simply highlighting them in this example of their failings and reminding them that God's moral righteous design will stand throughout time irrespective of what mankind does. Now I do just want to emphasise this. I, I absolutely recognise that there are many who we know and some in this room have gone through divorce. And it's heartbreaking. It's hard. It's not... It's, And though it wasn't God's original plan, he instituted grace. He instituted understanding. And we must do as well. Can I invite the band up, please? So what are we to make of all of what Jesus has said? Because there's a lot in there, isn't there? We could have dealt, we could have spent another two or three hours just exploring these passages. Like always, we only have a certain amount of times so we can only skim over and give the basics. But what are we to make of this? What are we to make of what we've explored so far throughout Luke 16? Well, really... Throughout the whole of 16, so far, there has been a moral, uh, a, a, a thread, if you will, a golden thread 
of moral, of the moral righteousness of God. And it's been there throughout. The moral righteousness of God and his desire for his people to live by his moral righteous standards in everything we do. Jesus has been teaching his disciples an aspect of this truth in relation to the right use of money and wealth, which is what we've been looking at. But when the Pharisees got involved, they probably wished they hadn't, but when the Pharisees got involved, Jesus took that same teaching of moral righteousness to a wider and a deeper level. Why? Because they should know better. They should know better as those responsible for the correct shepherding of God's people at that time. We live in a world that says, I will do it my way, as the song goes. I often reference that at funerals, whenever I'm speaking at funerals, because it's... It's a song that's often, yeah, I want that song because I did life my way. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. But we live in a world, people say, I will do it my way, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. With people saying, what I have is mine and I will use it however I want to use it. This unrighteous attitude is a slippery slope and paves the way into using and abusing God's perfect design for life for our own gain. Church, this cannot be us. This cannot be us as God's people, as Jesus' church on the earth. We must be a people who, with the Holy Spirit's help, strive every day to live morally and righteously not by our standard or our standard by the neighbours around us but by God's standard because there is no other standard and we need to be encouraging those around us our friends, our family, our colleagues with the gospel of Jesus Christ and encouraging them to accept (coughs) Jesus and to live the same way by God's moral standard because as we will see in two weeks time after our baptism service as we will see the last section of Luke 16 there is a harrowing reality harrowing reality and consequence for those who do not but God is a God of grace God is a God of love And he wants to see as many people, as many people saved from his righteous judgment. Because he is the standard of righteousness. He wants as many people saved and in his fold, in his kingdom, as possible. That is why we do what we do. That is why I stand here on Sundays. That's why you are encouraged and I'm encouraged every single day of the week to be prepared to give an account for the hope that is in our hearts. because we want to see as many people saved from God's righteous judgment as possible. Amen? Amen.
I'll leave it there. I'll end up going on. <laughs> Amen. Should we worship?